This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, I'm Michelle Ward. As a mom, I've looked my children in the eyes with love and hoped I can lead them toward a bright, wonderful future. But as a neurocriminologist who's been studying violent crime for the last 20 years, I've also quietly hoped that at the very least, I'm not raising a future serial killer. And if you can relate to that taboo thought, congratulations, you've just found your new favorite podcast. This is How Not to Raise a Serial Killer. Hello, and welcome back to How Not to Raise a Serial Killer. And today, I'm all by myself. I'm going to do my very first solo pod, which is a little bit of a lie because my producer, Devin, might pop in to ask some questions because sometimes I miss the really basic things. So we're going to see how this goes. In this episode, we follow Peyton Gendron, an 18-year-old boy who killed 10 innocent bystanders and injured three in a racially motivated hate crime. Now, we can easily start by talking about the need for more universal background checks when it comes to gun ownership or how the bigotry and racism in this country is at an all-time high. But for now, let's just start with the facts because we know what occurred and we know why it all went down. Peyton Gendron is from Conklin, New York, which is a small town about 200 miles southeast of Buffalo, and it's not very far from the Pennsylvania state line. And from a distance, the Gendron family seems like your everyday white, Christian, God-loving family. And they were the type of family who would wear matching white t-shirts and blue jeans for the uh, beach photo, the annual family photo. His parents, Paul and Pamela Gendron, both worked as civil engineers for the Department of Transportation. And the couple's salary combined was a little under $200,000 in 2020, according to state payroll records. Now, I say this only to emphasize that poverty and access weren't part of the problem in this case. There were very few public signs of the violence that was actually brewing in the Gendron home. If you looked at photos posted on the parents' Facebook and Instagram accounts, some have now been removed, but they showed a smiling family of five. There's Paul, Pamela, and their three sons. Some of the photos were them vacationing in Myrtle Beach. Others were them posing in matching red and black plaid pajamas for the holidays, etc. They're very normal-seeming. The mom's Pinterest page included boards about family vacations, camping, home decorating, and religious quotes. I mean, this family's like the Cleavers from Leave it to Beaver. They're basically as white bread as you could get. A friend of the family even told the Daily Mail that Peyton's parents wouldn't even allow violent video games in their home. But behind the computer screen of images of happy, God-fearing family photos, there was trouble brewing. And there were a few telltale signs of what was to come. On March 5th, shortly before the killings, Peyton wrote online that Paul, his father, 
had failed to notice that Peyton had upgraded his cell phone plan, and now he could live stream his slayings that would happen at the East Side Tops location. Then, on March 29th, Peyton's parents confronted him over his behavior the week before. And that behavior was him stabbing, beating, and decapitating a feral cat. And much less worrisome, he had also received an unwanted speeding ticket. Now, to me, the cat would be a game changer. That wouldn't be a simple conversation. That would be, hang on, stop everything, we have a problem. It's one thing when kids do it. It's a different thing when adults do it. Isn't that the first sign of a serial killer when you kill an animal? Well, it's one of them. There's a the trifecta of signs, and you'll see it in the childhoods of many killers. Not all. Many killers. I mean, many people hurt animals and go on to be just fine. But you often see, if you look backwards from a killer, you will find this. But Peyton's not a little kid at this point. This is right before he goes on to become a spree murderer. And it's my guess that this wasn't anything that was going to be predictive of the future, the future Peyton. This is him ramping up for something he's already planning to do. I would imagine he already has big plans. Well, the shit, we know he has big plans. He already talked about it. This was not something he was doing behind the scenes all the time and kind of putting him on that trajectory to violent crime. This was his testing out his rage and anger on the feral cat before he did it on innocent people. So that's all that I could find that was talked about given the cat slaying. And Peyton even wrote online that he had been lying to his family this entire time and they had no idea. He also claimed he was going to school and doing fine where he hadn't gone to school in weeks. Post after post, Peyton would write that he had ordered hundreds of dollars worth of body armor and had it sent to their home. Shotguns, AR-15s, and illegal magazines to go with them. PSA, if your kid is having firearms and tactical gear being sent to your house, don't ignore that. He also wrote that his parents didn't realize he was a white supremacist, nor did they share his views. And that's important, I think, when we go on to discuss how Peyton became the monster that he is. But Peyton's parents did start to realize something was wrong when, surprise, surprise, police visited their home after Peyton made some pretty concerning comments during a class about committing murder-suicide. Again, we don't ignore that. But his parents didn't realize what was up to come later, and it just didn't get that much attention from home. So Peyton claims that he was introduced to his love of guns through the Boy Scouts and through his uncle and cousins who had sometimes taken him shooting. His dad had bought him a Savage Access hunting rifle when he was 16 years old. And according to his online messages, his father had taken him shooting in Skyline Drive State Forest near Kirkwood, which is where he later went to rehearse his attack. Interestingly enough, Peyton was already on the police's radar after that threat to shoot up the school. Do serial killers typically rehearse their killings before doing it? So... Killers can rehearse their killings before they're doing it. What we typically see is they'll ramp up their killings. So they might not rehearse the first one, but they'll rehearse their routes. They'll plan. Those kind of cold-blooded predatory killers will plan things out. They do it for two reasons. One, because practice makes perfect. But two, a lot of them do it to calm their nerves. 
you have anticipatory fear, which is really uncomfortable. It's when you get super scared right before you jump off of a high dive or right before you do something really scary. Psychopaths have a reduction in that fear. They don't get the somatic markers like we've talked about, the racing heart rate and the sweating. But they still get a low level of it. And sometimes somebody who's planning on being a prolific killer will start practicing it to reduce that fear so that they're more calm, cool, and collected when they actually go and perform the murder. So it's not entirely unusual. What I have seen more often historically is there's a a sloppy first kill, and then they get better and better and better until they go long enough without being caught, and then they get lazy again. That's typically the trajectory if they're not caught. Interestingly enough, And as I mentioned, the police had already had Gendron on their radar after he had threatened to shoot up his school, which was the Susquehanna High School. And that was around his graduation. So unfortunately, not much was done. He was taken in for a mental evaluation, but nothing came from that. But if I'm his parents, it's like, okay, I remember that happening. He made those threats. The police knocked on our door. He had a required mental evaluation. And now we have a decapitated, skinned, dead cat. That to me is not going to, you know, be brushed under the rug, but we don't know what else was going on at the time. Gendron wrote that he was growing increasingly stressed that his parents would somehow discover his plan. And rightfully so. I mean, they do have some elements that are pointing to disaster impending, but he had lied to them about so much and gotten away with it. He'd even lied to them about attending college, even though he was no longer enrolled. And he would hide firearms around their house when they were out for the night so that he could have his stash in various places. Police have noted that before carrying out his shooting, Peyton researched the local demographics while looking for places of high concentration of Black residents. And he even arrived in Buffalo at least a day in advance to conduct reconnaissance. So here we have him practicing again. He's looking for his targets. I believe he's killing no matter what, but he has a specific target in mind. And now he's practiced at least twice. He's gone to go shooting, practicing in that way. But he's also gone to look at the actual place he's going to commit this vile crime. And I mean... He's no idiot. That's the right thing to do if you want to commit as many of these murders as you possibly can in a short period of time. It's really disturbing to read about, though, after the fact. Preliminary investigation found that Gendron had repeatedly visited sites supporting white supremacist ideologies and race-based conspiracy theories. His search history also revealed that Peyton researched the 2019 mosque shootings in Christchurch, New Zealand, and the man who had killed dozens at a summer camp in Norway in 2011. That second killing I mentioned in Norway is an interesting killing. First of all, that is not racially motivated. Those were all white kids. But that was the killing that changed how Norway handled firearms. That country's no joke, and it's a much smaller country, and and they shut it down immediately. I'm not even sure they ever even mentioned the killer's name. But... This goes to show you that while he is obviously a very racially motivated killer in terms of how he picks his victims, I think the killing is really what he's looking for. Officers said that the rifle he used to commit the slayings was, in fact, legal, but the magazines he had used for ammunition were not allowed in the state of New York. They couldn't be sold there. 
And Peyton even wrote a 180-page shooting manifesto, we've seen those before, that had widely circulated online plotting his attack. His document outlined a racist ideology where he believed that the United States should strictly belong to only white people. Serial killers don't typically have a manifesto like this. This is more your spree killers or your racially motivated killers or the Unabomb type of a killer. These are very specific. They're not your thrill seekers. These are driven for a specific type of killings, usually a specific type of person. And they will outline their grievances in a manifesto, why they're doing it, what what inspired them, and the changes that they're hoping that will come from their active violence. I talked to the son of one killer, and he had just gobbled up the Turner Diaries, which, you know, was a work of fiction, but it just outlined all of these racially motivated crimes to kind of create this all-white race again. These people have a lot in common. They're generally very weak, don't have a lot that they're particularly proud of in themselves, and they glom on to things like their religion or their race or something else they have absolutely nothing to do with, like hair color, and claim that they have God-given rights, birth rights, because of that. So we'll see that in these manifestos a lot, just kind of why they're mad, how this anger is supported, what their plan is, and how this is going to change the future. In Peyton Gendron's manifesto, he referred to any other people of color or religion as quote-unquote replacers who should be eliminated by force and terror. Peyton wrote that his attack he planned was to intimidate all non-white, non-Christian people to leave the country. He wanted to intimidate them and force them out. Everyone is different especially when it comes to health needs and goals. And that's why Care-of is here to make it easier than ever to stick to a vitamin routine personally tailored to your everyday wellness. Care-of is a subscription service that ships high-quality, personalized vitamins, supplements, and powders conveniently to your door every month. You take a short, in-depth quiz about your lifestyle and health goals for a personalized, doctor-backed recommendation, taking the guesswork out of what supplements are best suited for you. Care-of's daily vitamin packs are made of a plant-based compostable film, so you can stress less about your impact on the environment. The individual daily packs are so convenient for travel, just toss a couple in your bag or purse and you're all set. Each shipment comes with a customized pamphlet showing you exactly what is in your individual daily packs and why it was recommended specifically for you and your health goals. Taking the Care-of quiz was both fun and easy. It starts off by asking you your name, and then a little smiley face emoji winks at you. It couldn't be cuter. Then the quiz asks you about your opinion on vitamins. Are you informed, curious, or skeptical? After that, it goes on to ask you where you live, what you're looking for in a vitamin, and what some of your personal goals are. For me, it was more sleep, less stress, and more energy. The quiz is so detailed and asks every question with you in mind. Once you're done, you get your individual packs of vitamins just for you. For 50% off of your first Care-of order, go to TakeCareOf.com and enter code HOWNOT50. That's 50% off of your first Care-of order. Go to TakeCareOf.com and enter code HOWNOT50. Enjoy! During his attack, Peyton had decided to live stream the shooting to a tiny audience on Twitch. And that was just for a few minutes before the platform cut his feed. Have other serial killers ever live-streamed their killings? Killers have, 
here's the thing, a serial killer, somebody who plans to kill for a long period of time, does whatever they can in the beginning to go undetected. That was not Peyton's plan. He's not a serial killer. He's a spree killer. He knows this is going to be his one and only hurrah, one and done. There's no getting out of this. But he's doing all of this practice, not so that he can become a more efficient shooter in the future, but so he can kill as many people as possible in his limited event, his one day only show. So he did live stream this on Twitch. The platform cut his feed. And we're going to get into that later, this kind of feedback loop that many of these killers who do interact with an online presence and do feel supported by a community of racists sometimes, how that feeds into their future plans. Peyton wore military gear from head to toe, along with a helmet camera. Clips from his Twitch video began circulating online, showing Peyton shooting bullet after bullet after bullet. And this is like, these are going fast. This is not just a revolver. At one point during the clip, you watch as Peyton points his gun at a white person hiding behind a checkout counter, but he doesn't shoot that person. He says sorry to that person and then continues shooting people of color. The most chilling part is that Peyton Gendron wrote his parents a letter apologizing for what he was about to do, and he said he had to commit this attack. He had to for the future of the white race. Do killers ever take remorse in what they've done and write family members' apology letters just like him? This isn't remorse, just to be clear. This is him saying, I'm super righteous in this. I'm sorry, you're going to have to deal with it, but your son's going to be a hero. Um, killers can be remorseful. Psychopaths are not remorseful. But killers can be remorseful, especially those who are committing their crime in the heat of the moment. We talk a lot about the predatory, cold-blooded, psychopathic type of killers. And then we talk about the impulsive, hot-blooded killer. And that's the person with more of a second-degree killing. They do it in the heat of the moment. It's not planned out. They just couldn't control their impulses in that moment. Those people can experience genuine remorse. I'm not saying I forgive them, but they can experience remorse. Somebody like Peyton does not. FBI agents also discovered a receipt that Gendron had been at the scene of the crime before taking action. He'd gone in, he'd purchased a candy bar, and he scouted the place. They found handwritten sketches of the interior layout of Top's Friendly Market. And that makes sense. He needs to go in there and kill as many people as he possibly can, so he has to see the layout. After the slaying, Peyton Gendron was faced with several murder charges and 26 counts of hate crimes and firearm offenses for his racially motivated attack. Gendron is set to return to court on May 19th for a felony hearing where officials say that more charges may follow. I certainly hope so, because there's a lot of dead people in this case. And if convicted of the first-degree murder charges, Gendron will likely face a maximum sentence of life in prison without parole. So Peyton Gendron traveled more than three hours from his home to this specific supermarket in a predominantly Black neighborhood of Buffalo because it was carefully thought out. He wanted to be a mass murder that killed Black people. Peyton Gendron fatally shot Roberta Drury, 32 years old, Marcus Morrison, 52, Andre McNeil, 52, who was picking up a birthday cake for his grandson, Aaron Salter, 55, who was a retired Buffalo police officer working as the store's security guard, 
Geraldine Talley, 62, Celestine Cheney, 65, Hayward Patterson, 67, Catherine Massey, 72, Pearl Young, 77, and Ruth Whitfield, 86, who was a woman picking up groceries after visiting her husband at a nursing home. Zaire Goodman, 20, and Jennifer Washington, 50, along with Christopher Braden, were all injured in the attack as well. The slaying was pure evil. The victims were racially profiled, and this disgusting act affected numerous innocent individuals simply shopping at their local grocery store. Authorities have declined to comment on the document planning the attack and the shooter's racist, anti-immigrant, and anti-Semitic beliefs, but we're going to talk about it here. Do you think Peyton considered age when he planned his slayings? Well, he could have. I mean, if you think about it, this all skews older, obviously. And that could have been part of his calculus because he doesn't want to go in when it's a bunch of young, fit people who could tackle him. I mean, there was a 20-year-old in there, but the rest are all skewing older. They're certainly going to not be as fast as somebody who's younger. There's a lot going on here. And what we know about these young mass shooters and racially motivated killings can, you know, tell us a little bit about it. We don't have a tremendous amount of background on Peyton Gendron simply because it just happened. And as more comes in, we might learn more about his personal psychopathology, his personal behavior as a child that could have predicted some of this. I can't tell you enough about that right now because we simply don't know. But I can tell you generally what we can look for and how we can keep our eyes open and potentially stop this in the future. So in 1993, Jack DeVitt and Jack Levin, two social scientists in Boston, examined 169 hate crime case files at the Boston Police Department. They were interested in understanding what was motivating these race, racial hate crimes, these racial killings in many cases. They then interviewed victims, offenders, and investigators. And these two researchers found that there are basically four main kinds of hate crimes. They range from thrill seekers, which are the most common, to mission offenders. And those are the most rare, but most lethal. Peyton would be considered a mission offender. And according to the study, these, as I mentioned, are the deadliest. They are typically committed by people who consider themselves, quote unquote, crusaders. And it's often for a racial or a religious cause. Their mission is total war against members of a rival race or rival religion. And here's the kicker. Like Peyton, they're often linked to groups that share their racist views. Mission offenders like Peyton will write lengthy manifestos explaining their views. They visit websites steeped in hate speech and violent imagery, and they travel. And they do that to target symbolically significant sites or to find the victims they want to find. They want to maximize the carnage because they know, as I said, it's a one-day event. I say this probably to the point of sickening our listeners, but it can't be bad environment alone because then anybody with a bad home is going to become like this. But you can have a predisposition and then have triggers that happen in the environment. Obviously, if coming from a bad home was the only factor in creating a killer, we'd have a lot more of them. Many people come from horrifying childhood environments and they turned out just fine. Usually, it's somebody with a predisposition toward violence who ends up with some sort of environmental triggers that leads them down this road. We don't know enough about Peyton's childhood. On paper, it looks just fine. 
But you have to bear in mind that it's not simple. It's multifaceted. There could be head injuries in there. There could be some sort of genetic cluster of violence running through his pedigree. We don't know. Is his great uncle on death row? I have no idea. He could have experienced incredible trauma in his home. We just don't know enough yet. I would imagine the fact that he was kind of socially rejected, awkward, a little weird, I'd say a loner, that probably contributed to it. What makes him different, I don't know. We'll know more as time goes on. But we do know that these young shooters almost universally have been bullied, isolated, rejected, and felt like they just didn't fit in, often suffering from horrible depression. Now, Peyton absolutely killed in a racist fashion. But I think this is just a thinly veiled excuse for something a little bit more commonplace that I just mentioned. He's absolutely a racist, but I would guess that it's not the racism driving him to kill. Instead, that drove his selection of victims. I think he wanted to kill regardless. And we've seen a major shift in mass shooters in the last decade. They are becoming younger and younger. The majority of mass shootings are now committed by men and boys under the age of 21. Before the year 2000, most mass shootings were committed by men in their mid to late 20s, 30s, and 40s. Now, some of these are school shootings, but not all. And from my estimation, they all have a lot in common, whether it's occurring on a campus or in this case, a supermarket. I think a lot of it has to do with that peer rejection and bullying, but as always, I'm going to introduce some biology into this because I think the biology gets neglected sometimes. And while it's not the only cause, I love to look at these things holistically and look at all potential causes. Biology research has long indicated that there is a crucial age range in young males that's like a danger zone. And it occurs around 15 years to 25 years old. And this is the time frame when the male brain... And development overall is just not fully mature. The males are faced with mature problems at this point in their life, but their brains aren't ready to handle it yet. So there are school, work, societal pressures that are coming along, but they have this immature prefrontal cortex, which is this area right here behind your forehead that is supposed to regulate them and it's not done maturing. And this period of time is most often punctuated by aggressive and impulsive behavior. So you're going to see a lot of aggression and impulsive behavior, but most don't turn to violence. However, those who do, well, had they been faced with some of these challenges later, once their brain was fully developed, they might not have turned violent. So I'm not saying that the biology is causing them to be violent, but they are lacking some regulatory features in this critical age between 15 and 25 while they're waiting for this area, the, the frontal lobe of their brain to fully mature. Girls of that same age, by contrast, have much greater control over their impulses and emotions, generally speaking. Obviously, there's the outliers, the girls who can't control their impulses. But why is this generally true? Again, back to neurobiology. In teens, the area of the brain that is responsible for impulsive behavior, that's working just fine in boys. It's very active, it peaks early, but that area that's responsible for regulating these impulses, that's not quite developed. 
So the boys have all the impulses and urges with the limited ability to regulate them. But the brains of girls, on the other hand, develop faster so they can regulate themselves earlier. It isn't until, get this, the mid-20s that the regulatory area of the male brain catches up. Doesn't that explain so much of what we know about young men and boys? I mean, just the crazy stunts alone. I mean, forget the drinking, the driving, the partying, the girls. Let's just talk about, like, hanging onto the side of the car while riding a skateboard or cliff jumping. All these crazy things. I I had a nephew who rode on the back. He was on a mattress on the ground holding a rope while his friend drove a truck in the desert. And then the friend ended up on the street and everybody flew off the mattress. And I don't even want to describe the road rash. That kind of stuff he wouldn't do now as his brain is maturing. But as a teenager, it seemed like a really good idea. Us girls can do really stupid stuff too. I'm not saying we don't. But if you just look at it as a whole and you measure it, on average, the boys are doing a lot more of it than the girls are. But it's not just biology, as we've said. Like I mentioned, yes, this guy's a racist killer, But he also fits the profile of these very young boys and men who are becoming by far the more active spree shooters. And it wasn't like that before. So it's more than just biology because the biology has always been the same. We have more of what I'm about to describe now than we ever have before, at least that we're knowing that's being brought to our attention. And that's the lonely losers. And I hate to sound so callous and unemotional about it, but that's what they feel like. Of course, there's always been, since the beginning of time, the rejected peer, the kids who just don't fit in as well. But with social media, those children don't get to go home and turn off the events of the day, the bullying, the teasing, the parties they weren't invited to. They get to see all of it online still, even when they're home. We all knew these kids in high school, the outcasts the loners. And when I was in school, their treatment was still very appalling. I'm sure it was worse than I even knew. But a lot of these people have felt excluded, socially left out and rejected. And that's not from me. That's from John Van Driel, who is a behavioral threat assessment expert. And he talks about the studies that show that social rejection at school is associated with higher levels of anxiety, depression, aggression, and antisocial behavior in children. It's not an accident. In an article with National Public Radio, Van Drill goes on to talk about how these kids feel. He says things like, people who do these kind of targeted attacks, they just don't feel very good about themselves or where they're headed in lives. They may wish someone would kill them or they may wish they could kill themselves. And this isn't just his opinion or my opinion. A 2004 study by the U.S. Secret Service and the U.S. Department of Education found that nearly three-quarters of school shooters had been bullied or harassed at school. No surprise to you there. I know you guys have all heard that. Van Driel goes on to say, though, that marginalized kids don't have anchors at school. So they are being marginalized, bullied, mistreated, but they also don't have any adult connection, typically. There's no one watching out for them. And often, no one knows who they are anymore. They just fall under the radar. Do I think that that's why Peyton was online so much? Was he getting some sort of social fortification from these online groups? And the answer, I think, is unequivocally yes. He doesn't have a community at school. He has a community online. And the community he has chosen 
They're frankly a bunch of assholes. They're racist, bigots, terrorists, white supremacists. And he's feeling a little bit empowered there. And I've seen this. I've seen this. I worked on a show about a racial killer and he was just this little dork. But once he found his group of other white supremacists, oh my gosh, his whole attitude changed. And all of a sudden he felt like he was big man and he was strong and he was important. And I'm like, it was an accident of birth. You have nothing to do with your race. Come on, people. So kind of rolling with that theme, there's Dr. Reed Malloy, whose work I've leaned on for my work with stalking and my work with kind of terrorist attacks. This guy's a forensic psychologist who specializes in a bunch of different types of violence. And he says about half the school shooters he's studied have died by suicide in their attack. And Dr. Reed Malloy, who's a forensic psychologist who specializes in all sorts of violence, he says it's often a mixture of severe depression, anguish, and desperation that is driving them to end their own lives. And the absence of social support at school is a big risk factor. Okay, we've established that they're rejected. We've established they're likely depressed. But why? Why are they depressed? Is it simply because they're rejected? I don't know. So far, we've covered the neurobiology, and that's basically how young men and boys are more prone to violence, given they have these increase in urges and impulses, but their immature brain means they can't control those urges. And we've also talked about the role of loneliness, peer rejection, isolation, suicidality. But let's hone in specifically on the mental health aspect of it. It's no surprise to anyone listening that there is a worsening adolescent mental health situation happening right now. Now, this began before the pandemic, but the pandemic obviously exacerbated these issues. You know what we're seeing? We're seeing a very disturbing trend in increases in suicide. And there are studies outlining the increases in reports of loneliness, hopelessness, and da-da, the negative effects of social media. Many of the shooters who have been studied have struggled with psychological problems, according to common sense, but also the studies that I mentioned before by the FBI and the U.S. Secret Service. And Malloy, Dr. Reed Malloy, who I just mentioned, adds that this is often a combination of the depression and paranoia. And I want to stop on that for just a second. It's one thing to be inward you're depressed, you're inward, you think of self-harm, self-loathing. But when that switches to paranoia, sometimes those violent urges that had been pointed towards yourself are now going to point outward. Maybe you're feeling like people are out to get you. Maybe you're feeling like you are being victimized and you need revenge. Or maybe you feel like, shit, people are taking from your future children or from your own family. Whatever it is, you can begin to become paranoid. Many of these shooters have also experienced trauma in their young life. And almost all of them never got any treatment. When my cat's healthy, he's happy. And that makes me happy. But since I'm not a mind reader, I don't always know when he's healthy. Helping me know that my cat's healthy is just one reason I use Pretty Litter. Pretty Litter's ultra-absorbent crystals trap odor instantly. No more cat bathroom smell. Cats are notorious for hiding illnesses. My cat had fleas and didn't even bother scratching himself once. I had to learn the hard way when there was a bug on me after giving him an innocent head scratch. But with Pretty Litter, I don't have to worry about my silent guy. Pretty Litter literally changes color to tell you when your cat has a potential health issue, so you can get them help before it becomes an urgent medical situation. Pretty Litter's super light crystal base also minimizes mess and dust. 
Plus, the crystals last up to a month, which means less scooping and fewer trips to the garbage can. The litter changes color to help detect early signs of potential illness in my cat, and that includes urinary tract infections and kidney issues. It's now part of my daily routine to check out the color of my cat's pee. Dark yellow, olive green indicates that my kitty is within the typical range. But if I ever see blue, that's when I know to contact a vet as soon as possible because the kitty might have a UTI, which, as cute and silly as it sounds, isn't all that much fun for my guy. And Pretty Litter ships free to my door in a small, lightweight bag. I never run out of it, and I don't have a huge container of litter taking up space and stinking up my place. And don't even get me started on the little old grains of litter that were constantly on my floor wherever I stepped. Pretty Litter helps keep my cat healthy and keeps odors down. You and your cat are going to love Pretty Litter as much as we do. Go to prettylitter.com slash how not to save 20% on your first order. That's prettylitter.com slash how not to save 20%. Prettylitter.com slash how not. It's important to say this that I've said before and I'm going to say again. Mental illness alone cannot cause most of these shootings. You can get somebody who's having a psychotic break and they can kill. Absolutely. You can get somebody in the throes of psychosis who's hearing voices to kill and they kill. That happens. But I'm talking about depression. I'm talking about paranoia. That alone doesn't usually drive somebody to kill. And after all, only a tiny, tiny percentage of young men with psychological issues ever go on to create any violence at all, much less become mass shooters. Plus, there is a very big difference between someone who's feeling suicidal, like I said, and someone who turns that outward and begins to feel homicidal. Now, here's another thing that's important, especially for your parents at home. Sometimes depression, especially in young people, looks like anger and irritability. Now I know that this is freaking all of you out because what are teens? Teens are angry and they're irritable. But what's the difference between those who suffer through rejection, loneliness, maybe those who have mental illness and are depressed and nothing happens versus those who become violent? Like I said, turn it outward. Well, I have an idea. What about infamy? The shooting is almost always intended to be the killer's final act. They no longer have another moment to leave their mark on this earth. They're suicidal to begin with. They intend to die either by their own hand or be shot by the police. Now, I have long said that the post-Columbine shooters were the guys who previously would have just killed themselves in high school. We've seen it. They're the depressed, lonely, rejected ones. They feel invisible. They're bullied. They're ignored. But something very scary happened after Columbine. I believe, and the research is starting to ferret this out, that these young boys are arriving at a realization that while they are forgotten, ignored, see-through on Earth, they can live in death, in infamy. And that's better than being forgotten. So instead of killing themselves, they go out in a blaze of glory. But why? Why does this depression and despair turn into violence? Dr. Malloy says it's not a far leap at all. He reports that when someone has been struggling alone for a while and failing, and their despair then can turn into anger. He says that researchers are finding that it starts with fantasizing about revenge. And that makes sense. We've all seen the angry posts and manifestos that are published by these young shooters. Even the killer who came out of the incel community 
they are frustrated. They're angry. I want to have sex and the Beckys and Chads aren't letting me. Now, this guy wasn't an incel necessarily, but he is part of a marginalized community, rejected, lonely failure. That's what they feel. I'm not saying they're failures, but that's what they feel. Frank T. McAndrew, a Knox College psychology professor who studies mass shootings, said that almost all the young killers he has researched were motivated by a need to, surprise, prove themselves. He says, and I quote, these are young guys who feel like losers and they have an overwhelming drive to show everybody they are not on the bottom. He goes on to say that in the case of the Buffalo shooter, the friend we're talking about right now, it was about trying to impress this community of racists he had cultivated online. Again, I think that this guy was going to be violent, but now he'd found some camaraderie with a bunch of racists. Jillian Peterson, a criminal justice professor who, along with James Densley, founded The Violence Project. And this is a very important project. It maintains a comprehensive national database of mass shootings. Now, listen, we have a chronic problem in the United States of school shootings. But to study them, the numbers are still a little low. We can't put statistical significance on them yet, but we can report trends. Now, she says a very big cluster of young people, 18, 19, 20, 21 years old, they seem to get caught up in the social contagion of killing. That's that Columbine phenomenon I was talking about. I was in school. I was getting my PhD. I was a very, very young, brand new, wide-eyed, ignorant graduate student. And I had appealed to the government for some funding for my research. I was probably pretty low on the list. And then the Columbine shootings happened. And of course, I'm the one saying, I want to study the biological underpinnings of violent crime. I want to move beyond the social psychology. I want to know more than environment. I want to study the genes and the neurobiology. Yeah, 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 yeah. We're not going to do that yet. Well, Columbine happens and I was funded that next week. I thought myself then, shoot, their names are everywhere. And we had already known, those of us in the research community, that there are copycats when you have killings. It can happen. Never in my wildest imagination did I think it was going to happen how it has happened. These young men and boys, they become inspired by these past shooters and they turn their anger, loathing, depression, they turn it into revenge. This copycat phenomenon is growing now with the advent of social media and it's ubiquitous. Everyone has social media. It is so much easier to gain a following or to become part of a group. Even in the 1990s, the gunmen in Columbine, they had access to the internet. It was, I mean, it was the late 1990s, but even they created a blog on AOL where they wrote about these violent fantasies. So the internet is giving these young men a way to flex. If you're feeling powerless, weak, and insecure, you can find a way to be a tough guy on a social media or other platform. Plus, any potential shooter can use the internet to study exactly how a previous shooter carried out the crime. Now, I mentioned the Columbine killers. They have the creepiest, most disturbing cult following. They are revered in some large, disgusting circles. It's so horrifying to even think that. But now you get to see this online. So any potential young shooter gets to go see how revered those murderous monsters are today. And the fact that we display every last detail about these young shooters on the news 
only worsens the copycatting. Not to get too deep into the gun debate, but having easy access to guns is a risk factor that pops up again and again, and it can turn these fantasies into reality. The shooters have to have a means to carry out their attacks. Of course, sometimes it's bombs, sometimes it's a knife, sometimes it's poison, usually it's assault weapons. In 2006, Dr. McAndrew, who I'd mentioned earlier, and two more of his colleagues, they set out to test the effect of guns on the behavior of young men. This study is shocking. What they did is they monitored the testosterone levels and signs of aggression in 30 male college students when they were given a children's toy gun and then an actual firearm. Okay, 30 is not a big number, I know that. But it's an interesting preliminary finding because the presence of a gun changed their behavior significantly. Just holding the gun gave them guts and it increased their testosterone. So like I said, in order to carry out a spree shooting, the shooter needs access to firearms and ammunition. And according to Peterson and Densley, they're the ones who have the violence project, 80% of these young shooters obtained their weapons from members of their own family, typically parents or grandparents. Once someone decides life is no longer worth living and that murdering others would mean a proper revenge, only means and opportunities stand in the way of another mass shooting, according to those researchers. It's once they're intent on killing, once they're intent on dying, all they now need is opportunity and guns. And that's a small hurdle. There have been men teaching their sons to shoot since the inception of this country. And I'm not opining about that. However, you got to know who your kid is. And if you have a troubled child, maybe Peyton was, maybe Peyton wasn't, I don't know. If you have a troubled child, the onus is on you, dad. The onus is on you, mom, to choose not to arm them. I know it's like, well, my granddaddy taught me to shoot and my dad taught, that's fine, but not of all of us are created equal. And there's no way you can get away with saying we are. We all now know we are all born with individual differences. We have risk factors, we have protective factors. End of story. So if you have an Adam Lanza in your house or a Peyton Gendron, as, as we're learning, you don't give them access to firearms. Sorry, you don't. I don't mean to point fingers, but that one's a no-brainer for me. However, I don't think Gendron got his guns from his parents. I think the introduction might have let him feel emboldened. He knew how to fire. But I'm not sure his parents gave him these guns, the ones he used. I don't really know. Many mass shooters have also obtained their weapons, if it's not through parents, but through completely legal avenues. According to a survey by the National Institute of Justice, as reported by the New York Times, 77% of mass shooters between 1966 and 2019 bought their weapons legally. So, of course, you have conservatives who are resisting efforts by congressional Democrats to raise the legal age to buy a semi-automatic rifle from 18 to 21. That, to me, seems like a no-brainer. We have all the science to back up that an 18-year-old male's brain is very immature. I mean, shit, a 21-year-old male's brain is still immature, but it's getting better. You'd think that that would be a very easy bump up. Now, on one of my other podcasts, I spoke to somebody who is a very active member of the NRA and I believe runs their chapter in their area in California. And even he said, I'd love to see the age range bumped up to 21. I don't see a lot of pushback. I have also mentioned that the former owner of Turner's Outdoorsman shared the same sentiment with me. He said, you know, when it comes to these semi-automatic rifle, I don't know. I just think that they should be 21. Boom. I haven't seen a lot of pushback on that. However, a Republican-appointed federal judge 
struck down California's attempt to increase that age. America would not exist without the heroism of young adults who fought and died in our revolutionary army, Judge Ryan Nelson said, speaking for a two-to-one majority in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. He wrote an opinion released on May 11th, which was three days before the Buffalo killing we're discussing today. I mean, look, there's got to be a little give and take. I'm not saying take anybody's guns away, but I just think there are young men who don't need to have firearms. You can't say that mental health is the problem because, as I've said multiple times, mental health exists. I mean, we have no reason to believe it doesn't exist uniformly around the world. Mental health issues, mental illness, it exists in other places. It exists in Europe, probably to the same degree it exists here. But guess what? We actually medicate, handle it. We have much more resources regarding mental health than any other country in the world. So actually, you could argue that we're in better shape with mental health. Mental health problems are increasing around the world, but we're the only place where these young spree shootings are increasing around the world. So it's more than mental health. I think access to guns doesn't help us. I mean, again, I'm not saying take all the guns away. I'm just saying we have to pay attention to that. And bumping up the age could potentially eliminate some of these people from acting out in guns. I'm not saying they wouldn't do something else, but maybe the assault rifles wouldn't be used. Now, let's take a moment to talk about precipitating factors, because if we're going to have a podcast called How Not to Raise a Serial Killer, we need to know what to look for, right? In the research that I've mentioned from the Violence Project, Peterson and Densley found that most of these early shooters they studied had experienced childhood trauma and or exposure to violence. We know that. That's not uncommon to see trauma, but it's also slippery because if you look at a killer, you can find trauma in almost anyone's background, I've learned, that you can take, and we actually did this, we actually took young people who had no kind of antisocial behavior tendencies and young people who did, and then we double-blinded it and then dug in and we were able to find a source of environmental trauma in almost every single case. So sometimes you find what you're looking for, but it is unequivocal that you do see massive amounts of trauma in criminals' lives. You just do. There is a tendency toward that. Not in every one of them. I mean, a lot of our serial killers, they grew up in wonderful families. But there is a higher propensity for trauma in this group. That's absolutely true. But it's not working alone. They typically leave signs or warnings about what they are going to do, these young shooters. It could be a message on social media, it could be a text to a friend, or it could be a video message. I think that's the most important thing. You have to take every single one of those seriously because in almost every case, these young shooters announced they were going to do this. Now, here's another element that's a little bit controversial. Some very concrete form of crisis typically happens right before the shooting, like right before, within days or weeks. A breakup, a fight, getting expelled. Nearly every mass shooter that Peterson and Densley studied had a specific, identifiable, clear crisis in the weeks or I guess even months before the shooting. Usually it's pretty close temporally. And it resulted in depression, despondency, everything that you could imagine would come from it. This seems to be the catalyst, the, the final straw. And so there's this idea that we should not suspend these kids. And I know that seems counterintuitive. You want them away from our children. But according to the psychologists who study these children, you don't want them home alone. You don't want them bored. You don't want them just 
steeping in their plans. You want them busy. So it allows them to ruminate and continue thinking about what they're going to do, what's going to happen next. I'm going to be speaking at a school where they just recently suspended a child who had made threats. And I'm really on the fence about that because on one hand, of course, you know, your urge is to remove the problem, but kind of counterintuitively, you could be fomenting a bigger one. Now, I want to go back to the young man who's weird, socially projected, lonely, depression. So these are the three things that we look for. Socially rejected, maybe bullied, lonely, depressed. That's one. Two, they start having a fascination with guns, war, tactical gear. They start buying it. It starts arriving at your house. If it starts coming to your house, pay attention. That's two. And number three, an event, a precipitating event, a breakup, fire from a job, in trouble with your parents, kicked out of school. That seems to be a meaningful trifecta when it comes to these young shooters that I want to leave the listeners here with today. I don't mean to minimize trauma at all because trauma is, it changes your brain, by the way. Like, especially traumatic event after traumatic event, it changes the way your brain works. It changes the function of your brain. It actually can activate areas that don't need to be activated all the time. It can change the morphology. I'm just saying, if we only pay attention to one factor when it comes to violence, we are going to be missing other very important factors. So we can't just look at head injury and genetic underpinnings of crime. We can't just look at environmental factors like trauma and abuse. And we can't just look at rejection and bullying. We have to look at everything. And that holistic approach now is being more widely accepted. It used to be that the biological scientists didn't want to hear about the environment and the social scientists didn't want to hear about biology. Neurobiology has no business in the study of crime. Well, guess what? It all has business in the study of crime. And that's why I tried to talk about it on this podcast so that those of us raising children can get in front of the train before it leaves the station. So when it comes to Peyton Gendron, we are going to learn more as time goes on. While he's in prison, he'll probably give some interviews that typically happens. We'll get to know his parents better, his childhood and we'll begin to understand exactly which risk factors he had. We do know that he fits into the profiles I've mentioned. He was a bit awkward. He was finding community with these white supremacists. He was angry. He felt like he needed to take revenge. He felt like he needed to support his white race for the future. And he was getting really violent. This guy wanted to take whatever he was dealing with on the inside. He wanted to take it outward. That's what I think that cat was about. I think this guy wanted to be violent. He had urges that he was going to act on. And unfortunately, and in a moment of, I would say, cowardice, he chose a marginalized group of people and tried to put himself above it just by the fact that he was, by no choice of his own, born white. That makes it even more disgusting in my view. But I want to leave us with those three things I mentioned, the socially rejected child, interest in firearms, and then the precipitating event. We can keep those in mind when we're watching our children, when we're participating in school, when we are maybe a school administrator. I think that these researchers are on to something. We are really good about implementing solutions afterward. But in a school situation, we can implement tighter security or even metal detectors. Not that I believe any of that works. But what do you do when you have somebody 
like Peyton Gendron. What are you going to do with all the supermarkets? You're going to have metal detectors? Well, what then they go to libraries? Well, what if then they're going to go to a playground? What are you going to do then? I think we need to start looking at problems before they happen and just do whatever we can. We're not going to stop everybody, but what if we stop one? What if... Anyway, this has been How Not to Raise a Serial Killer, and we'll see you again soon. How Not to Raise a Serial Killer is a Cloud 10 Media production, executive produced by me, Dr. Michelle Ward, and Sim Sarna. Our editor is Emily Crane. Our music was created by Josh Cook, with artwork provided by Brian Stefanik. Follow us on Instagram at How Not to Raise a Serial Killer and on TikTok and Twitter at Hentrask. That's at H-N-T-R-A-S-K. If you like our show, do me a favor and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. After all, if more people know about the show, maybe fewer kids will turn into serial killers. Who knows? Thanks so much for listening. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.